Well, our scripture reading this morning is uh, Zechariah 9.9 and then Luke 19.28-41. through 41. If you have your Bibles, I invite you to uh, predominantly turn to the Luke 19 passage that's for you. The text is also printed uh, in the... So first we'll read Zechariah 9.9. Let us give our, our careful attention to the reading of God's word. Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem, behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he, humble and mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. And then Luke chapter 19, beginning at verse 28. And when he had said these things, he went on ahead, going to Jerusalem. And when he drew near to Bethphage and Bethany, At the mount that is called Olivet, he sent two of his disciples, saying, Go into the village in front of you, where on entering you will find a colt tied on which no one has ever sat. Untie it and bring it here. If anyone asks you, Why are you untying it? You shall say this, The Lord has need of it. So those who were sent away and found it, just as he had told them. And as they were untying the colt, its owners said to them, Why are you untying the colt? And they said, The Lord has need of it. And they brought it to Jesus, and throwing their cloaks on the colt, they set Jesus on it. And as he rode along, they spread their cloaks on the road, and as he was drawing near already on the way down the Mount of Olives, the whole multitude of his disciples began to rejoice and praise God with a loud voice for all the mighty works that they had seen, saying, Blessed is the King who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. And some of the Pharisees in the crowd said to him, Teacher, rebuke your disciples. And he answered, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. And when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. This has been the reading of God's word. Please be seated. This morning is Palm Sunday. This is the Sunday before Easter, of course, and this is where where much of the church stops to consider Jesus entering into Jerusalem, the final week of his life before he goes to the cross. Um, You could argue, and and I would argue, that the most important questions that, that we can possibly consider as human beings really find their answer in the events of this week, from the one Sunday, Palm Sunday, all the way to the next Easter Sunday. These are the big questions, really, that are answered. What does it mean to be human? Who is God, and what is God like? Do I need salvation? And if so, what is salvation? And again, they all find these powerful answers just in the events of this week of Jesus' life, in our our history, in this world that that we share together 2,000 years ago. So the week begins with Jesus. He's the king of of kings. He's entering not just the city of Jerusalem, but his city of Jerusalem. This is David's city, and and he is David's son. And the reception sounds right, doesn't it? What we just read, the, the, the reception to Jesus as king, it sounds fitting, it sounds accurate. Jesus rides into Jerusalem, and whoever is gathered, whoever this multitude of disciples is, whoever this crowd is that's singing, so far they're acing the test, aren't they? 
Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord. And hosannas are sung. Jesus is in the right place at the right time. Jerusalem is in the midst of celebrating the greatest festival, the greatest religious feast in the entire kind of, kind of Jewish calendar, which is the event of Passover. Jerusalem had 25,000 residents. It was a pretty good-sized city in the ancient world. During this one week, it would swell to 250,000 people. What's the first thing you ask someone that just went to Disneyland? You don't ask if they had fun, because the answer is no, they just think they did. I'm just kidding. I'm just kidding. That's, just, that's cranky me. I'm just joking. Now, what's the real question you ask? It's always the same question. How were the crowds? How busy was it? And what's the answer? Yeah, full, crowded. Part of navigating Disneyland is navigating the inherent chaos and tension that we all feel when we're around that many people. You fear losing your party. If you're a parent, you you fear losing your kid. Uh, you're, You're trying to avoid lines. Everything just feels amped up a little bit, and it feels hectic. That was Jerusalem at this point, 250,000 people swelling into that city. The greatest celebration of the greatest liberation from slavery, God's deliverance of his people from Egypt, and yet what's about to happen is an even greater liberation, freedom not just from a geopolitical enemy, Rome, but freedom from sin and death. A liberation not just for the Jewish people, but for um, all of humanity is now involved in this act of liberation. And this is the drama that Jesus embarks on riding a donkey into Jerusalem at the songs of praises sung for him. This is the liberator hailed by his captives. It's the afflicted who who recognize the rescuers here. And here's the thing. I think this is the point. Palm Sunday is the world at its most confused. Palm Sunday is the world at its most confused. The people have pinned their hopes and dreams and expectations on the right king, at the right time, at the right place. And they still get it all wrong. They still get it all wrong. Their hopes, their dreams, and expectations are all wrong. And of course, by that Friday evening, everything will have fallen apart. Palm Sunday is the world at its most confused. Good Friday is the world at its absolute lowest because there's no hope. Where God is, there's hope. When you, on, on your darkest day, I, I can still find some semblance of a word of hope for you. But what if Jesus is laying dead in a tomb? But then, of course, Sunday comes and the world has changed. Death is overcome, defeated in the death and resurrection of Christ. Easter is the solution to the greatest fear we have, separation of death. And so you can see why churches pause to recognize this week. Because if the things that we read are true, then absolutely everything is changed. This morning I want to meditate briefly with you on the kingship of Jesus which means we are inherently also looking at the confusion of the world, and it's a confusion that we know intimately. Palm Sunday is underrated in my book. Palm Sunday is underrated because it exposes our heart's inclination for the power and the values of this world, our heart's inclination for the glory of this world, 
It's the collision of the kingdoms of this world and their values and priorities with the kingdom of Jesus. It's all on display right here. This scene asks and answers for us in such memorable, powerful ways the question, well then what kind of king do I need? And in order to answer this question, we'll look at three aspects. Again, just jumping into the drama of this scene that has so much going for it. The first question is, what do we see? What are the visual cues that we get in this scene? Secondly, what do we hear? And then finally, what do we feel? And I think in answering those questions, we, we figure out the kind of king that we need from this passage. And so, first of all, what do we see? Again, this passage, it, it tells us something so incredible about Jesus, something that is missed by the crowds that surround him and sing for him and cheer for him. They fail to understand the kind of king they really need. And I think that's our access point. That's our entryway as, as modern people into this text, is that we can, we can relate to that idea. We're missing something, too, because so far everything seems like it's going according to plan. So what kind of king do we need based on the visuals of this passage? Well, first of all, what's the most striking, memorable thing about the triumphal entry? When you think about visually what comes to mind, you think of the animal, right? The animal that Jesus rides on, the donkey. You think about the fact that the, 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 the crowd comes alongside Jesus and they won't even let the donkey uh, walk on the dirt road, right? They lay down their clothes in order to uh, create this makeshift red carpet. But it's not some rich purple regal material, it's the clothes that they have on their backs. It's the equivalent of you and I, we, we throw our sweatshirts and jackets on the ground before Jesus. And so what does all this mean? What's being symbolized here? What's happening it's a coronation. This is a kind of impromptu ceremony by which Jesus is entering his city in order to ascend to the throne, in order to become king. This is what the people are proclaiming, and yet over the next week, what will happen? Well, they wanted a king, it's just not this one. See, Jesus here is revealing himself in an extraordinarily powerful way. Now, think about where the passage began in verse 28. It almost sounds like Jesus is even speaking differently at this point. The way he takes control of this situation, the way he speaks with authority. Go into the village, find a colt, and untie it. Well, that's great, Jesus, but what if someone asks us what we're doing? Say, the Lord needs it. End of story. Such authority. Jesus is in charge of his coronation. You think when, when Queen Elizabeth, the, the monarch of, of, of Britain, God bless her, right? When she dies, um, there will be a coronation committee for Prince Charles, uh, assuming, of course, that he outlives his mother, which is no guarantee because she, she's, she's, she's enduring, isn't she? But you have a whole team, a, a coronation coordinator. Jesus is his own. Jesus is in charge of his coronation. And so what's he showing in these acts of authority? It's the kind of king that he is. So again, the most dramatic thing we see in our passage is that he's riding on a donkey. It's not just a donkey, though. It's an unbroken colt. It's a colt that's never been ridden. And so it's a visual paradox. On the one hand, yes, uh, a colt donkey is, is the most humble of beasts. But on the other hand, there is an extraordinary amount of authority that's also present in that same kind of symbolical paradox. Because Jesus rides on this donkey, Why? He reaches into the Old Testament in order to act out Zechariah 9.9. 9. 
He shows them the kind of king they really need and that he is. He goes back to the Old Testament scriptures, what Jesus just called the scriptures. It's about three quarters of our Bible. It anticipates with promise what the New Testament fulfills, especially pertaining to the Messiah, which is, that just means God's anointed deliverer, which is Jesus. And so Jesus reaches back to Zechariah 9.9 and he sets the stage for his entrance into Jerusalem. And so we read in Zechariah 9.9, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. That just means people of God pay it, uh, uh, rejoice, celebrate. Behold, your king is coming to you, righteous and having salvation is he, humble, mounted on a donkey, on a colt, the foal of a donkey. It's a beautiful song. Rejoice, your king is coming. Such anticipation. Contrast this with Psalm 146. It's a, it's a psalm I think uh, it's, it's relatively familiar. Put not your trust in princes, in a son of man in whom there is no salvation. Don't put your trust in politicians or political projects. They don't have salvation. Rejoice, daughter of Zion, because this king has what? He has salvation. And so by all means, put your trust in. In him. There's such anticipation with this song. Uh, the, the only thing I can come up with is like a parent or spouse who is anticipating the return of their loved one from, from deployment and all those beautiful reunion scenes you have. Rejoice, they're home. Rejoice, he's coming to you. This is the king, Zechariah says, who has salvation. This is the king who's going to save. This is the king who will be victorious. The question for us is, how will he accomplish his victory? And Zechariah says, through righteousness and humility. Does that sound like the kings of this world? Does that sound like the leaders of this world? Humble and righteous. No, that's not normal. That's not normal. Jesus is our humble king. Jesus is the one that, that, that Paul, uh, probably quoting in an ancient hymn, uh, one of the greatest songs ever written. Though he, though he was in the form of God, he did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped. He emptied himself. Taking the form of a servant, being born in the likeness of men, and being found in human form, he humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death, on a cross. So here is this king, Jesus, who did not come to exalt himself over us. Like every other king that's ever lived, like you and I, if we were kings, that's how we would rule as well. But he did not come to exalt himself over us. Instead, he came to lower himself below us. This king is exalted not with pomp and show and pageantry. He is exalted finally when his cross is raised up. So Jesus is absolutely unique in his humility, but he's also a righteous king, going back to Zechariah. So why is he righteous? Well, let's listen to the Apostle Peter from 1 Peter 3. For Christ also suffered once for our sins, the righteous for the unrighteous, that he might bring us to God, being put to death in the flesh, but made alive in the Spirit. The crowds want a king who will bring them prosperity and power, and really what they need and what we need is a king who will bring us to God. We want a king who will give us the life that we long for, our hopes and expectations met. And the king we have in Jesus is one who will do something that we can't do for ourselves. He brings us to God. 
In humility, Jesus goes to the cross to die the death that you and I deserve, a death that we deserve because we are unrighteous, because we are prideful, because we are sinful. And so Jesus lived the life that God, our creator, required us to live. And at the cross, he died the death that God would demand of us because of our sin. He humbled himself and he died in our place. Now, I hope at this point we can reflect on a couple of things. One is, I hope for, the, for most of us, if not all of us, that would be my heart's delight, is that we can all take a step back and just again reflect on the greatness of Jesus. That, yeah, he's the humble and righteous king that we need and that we have forever and ever. Amen. Beautiful news. But I also hope that we can reflect on this passage and we can completely understand why the crowds turned on him. Why the crowds turned on him. Who wants to follow a humble king? Because do you know what it means to follow a king who is humble? It means that you yourself have to get humble too. You yourself have to get low. I really think this is a a crucial thing to understand, especially when we talk about living in a post-Christian society. This one stands out to me as a a popular, well-trodden way to abandon Jesus. We don't want a humble king. Think of the ways that we as a society can reject the kingship of Jesus. We can say, I want to be the boss of my own life. I want to indulge in the pleasures of this world. Um, I want to indulge in the sexual exploits that are celebrated. And so, Jesus, no, you can't be the king of my life. I want to sit on my own throne. And so, for for years, we we have this kind of category of professing believers who ignore calls to holiness and chastity. And they'll say things like, those are just kind of archaic relics of a bygone era. Well, I also think we have a lot of professing believers who reject calls to humility and getting low. It's hard. It's, it's, it's countercultural to follow a humble king. Every generation hears hosannas from the lips of those who will stop pursuing the kingdom of God because they've set their hope on the glories and values of this world. But this is the king we need. This is the king that has salvation. Well, that's what we see. That's what we see in this scene. But what do we hear? We learn about our king by what we see. We have this donkey that's, that's loaded symbolically. We have the royal carpet laid out. We have the crowd, right? But, but what are the sounds that we hear as we come to this scene? Verse 38, we hear a song that's sung by the multitude of disciples. Blessed is the king who comes in the name of the Lord. Peace in heaven and glory in the highest. The crowd sings Psalm 118. It's a psalm of people coming into Jerusalem with this king who defeats his enemies and brings peace. It's a song of victory, but are the people singing about the right victory? So many people on that Sunday thought that Jesus was coming to bring incredible political victory. Freedom from the rule of Rome, God's land restored finally to God's people. Why did they sing to Jesus? Well, it's because they had experienced, they had seen that this was a great man. He has a multitude following him, and Luke tells us exactly why this multitude followed him. It's because they had seen his mighty works. Jesus taught with power, Jesus loved so deeply with compassion, and yet they believed that the ultimate deliverance that they would receive from him would look just like Moses, leading God's people away through the Red Sea out of Egypt. In the same way, in a similar way, Jesus would lead them out from under the yoke of Rome. 
In the Gospel of Mark, we have a further elaboration on this scene. Mark writes that the multitude also sang these words, Blessed is the coming kingdom of our father David. In other words, we're going back to the glory days. The people were looking to the past. And so I think a question that we need to ask is, were the people using Jesus to get what they really want? And I have to think that's a temptation that doesn't really go away. There's no such thing as the good old days. That's a sub-Christian perspective because it always discounts the pervasiveness of sin and the reality of the devil. As if at some time those things didn't exist. The simple way to articulate this is that the good old days were never good for everybody. And that makes sense with our doctrine of sin. This is crucial because we need to remember that the gospel is not a retrieval project, it's a redemption project. The problem with God's people wasn't a, a foreign oppressor, it was a domestic enemy. It was sin. And so Jesus doesn't invite us to go back to the good old days. Jesus invites us into hope and a future in him. Jesus came to usher in a new creation, not bring us back to an old one. I mean, it's not a retrieval project. Think about how salvation is not to be restored standing next to Adam in the garden. No, it's to be with the second Adam, the new Adam, and the new creation. Everything is new. When you come to faith in Christ, he makes you new. Your heart is made new. He gives you a heart that is inclined toward God, a heart that becomes more conformed by the Spirit who brings the new creation into the present reality, who shapes you into the image of our King, who shapes your heart into something that looks more and more humble and righteous, just like your King. What else do we hear in this scene? You hear the singing of the crowds, but of course not every voice in the crowd joined the chorus. So in verse 39, we have the Pharisees. They come and they want Jesus to shut the crowd up. They, this is inappropriate. They understand what the crowd is singing. And they say, you need to stop this. And Jesus says, I tell you, if these were silent, the very stones would cry out. Remember, this is the world, not at its most wrong, but at its most confused. Everything almost sounds right. This is the king who is bringing his kingdom to bear on the world. This is the king who is so worthy of our praise. And there is nothing that can silence praise to this king who is worthy. Jesus never corrects the crowds, does he? Instead, he shows them the power and glory of his kingdom. And he shows that it will come in the way they, they least expect. It's a cross-shaped power and glory that saves that demonstrates for Israel and for the world the greatness and love of this king. The main point, though, is Jesus is worthy. And remember, he's his coronation coordinator. Even if the crowds failed to join in this coronation, it, it, it failed to join in this celebration, you better believe the rocks would. Because this is the one we've been waiting for. And this is the one who's worthy of our all. So put this puzzle together of what we're seeing, the authority, Jesus is the long-awaited king. He's re he, he receives the praise, never corrects it. Even if they're most confused, never corrects it. Uh, identifies the worth of himself here. And then finally, what do we feel? That's our third and final point. We take this scene, what do we feel? I know that's subjective. I, I know that we feel a lot of different things, but here's where I'm going with this. This scene gives us the heart of Christ for sinners. And that has to move us. 
uh, that has to move us not just with intellectual understanding, not just with uh, able to articulate truths, but has to move us in our hearts. How much does Jesus love sinners? So much that he rode a donkey into Jerusalem as our humble king. But that's not all, right? He receives the praise. And then we have verse 41, which is kind of the connecting verse. It's the same scene, but I cut us off right there because I think this, this, this nicely ties up what this scene presents about Jesus. Verse 41, and when he drew near and saw the city, he wept over it. Three crucial verbs. He draws near, he sees the city, and then he weeps. All three verbs, so incredibly rich. Um, the triumphal entry, uh, when, when you think about artistic depictions of this scene, normally it looks something like Jesus on a donkey going through the streets of Jerusalem, right? You usually have the architecture of Jerusalem, but you see here, that's not quite right. Um, he's not in the city yet. Instead, he's at the Mount of Olives, and so it's this really dramatic, beautiful scene, right? He's descending from a mountain, overlooking his territory. He's looking over his kingdom as its rightful king. And so from the mountain, what do we see first? He draws near. The big shift in the Gospel of Luke takes place in Luke chapter 9, where Jesus, we're told, he set his face toward Jerusalem. That's a key verse. Jesus is on a mission headed to Jerusalem. And so what do we see here? That mission is, is, is commencing. Jesus sets his face toward Jerusalem, but here in, in, in our passage, he draws near to Jerusalem. Every step he takes, he's getting closer to his death. There are a lot of ways for Jesus to avoid his death, but he does not do that. Instead, every step he takes, even as he looks like a king in triumph, it's a step toward his death. Secondly, he sees the city. This might be the one we're tempted to get rid of, right? Do we really need to understand that Jesus saw the city? Of course, if he's on a mountain on a donkey, he can see what's in front of him unless his eyes are closed. And yet, maybe this is the most crucial verb we have because Jesus takes a step toward his death and then he takes inventory of his rejection. He sees the city that opposes him. He is the king, humble and righteous and eager to save a people who want nothing to do with him. And then thirdly, he weeps. I think if you were hearing this uh, in the original language, maybe the, the, the first time you're hearing this dramatically read, like in a church service or something, I, I think this word would catch you off guard because this is not a tear that wells up in Jesus' eye and then kind of cinematically begins to stream down his cheek. This is ugly crying. This is wailing. This is sobbing. Do you ever picture this with the triumphal entry? Same exact scene. Jesus receives hosannas. Jesus is, is told, he is, he is, he's announced by the crowds, he's, he's, he's praised as the king coming to his city, and all of a sudden he begins to wail. He descends into his city and he loses it. He's weeping for the city. He's weeping for the ones who will soon cry out, crucify him. And so the question again is, what do we feel? Because he's also weeping for us, Right? He's also weeping for us because we're the crowd. We're the fickle. We're the ones who say, yes, yes, we, we want a king that, that's humble and righteous and then live our lives as if that were the last thing that were true. And so he weeps for us. And so I hope that we feel the compassion and love of Jesus for the lost because his tears surely reveal his love. So if you're not a believer uh, in, in Jesus, if, if you don't bow the, the, the knee to King Jesus this, this morning, um, 
I just want to present him to you as one that's worthy. Because there are no other kings like this. There are no other kings who weep for the people they will, they will, they will die for to save. That's how good Jesus is. And, and if you are a believer, would you grasp his heart for you displayed here? His tears for you and me, I mean, isn't that a sign that Jesus is not indifferent toward us? Does this move you? Do you feel the heart of Jesus? Far from indifferent to you, he would go through his coronation of suffering so that you and I might have life. Jesus entered Jerusalem, king of kings, the one who reigns, yet by freely giving of himself to his rebellious people, his power and authority made perfect in weakness. Jesus, our king that we need, he wore a crown, but it was not of precious metals or gems. It was a crown of twisted thorns. He was adorned with mock kingly purple garments that were stripped from him by Roman soldiers, and he was enthroned upon a cross. Jesus was anointed the king and savior of the world, not with rich ceremonial oil streaming down his hair, but by his own blood dripping down his face. Surrounding him, his subjects exchanged hosannas for curses. And from the lips of King Jesus, from his cross throne, he issued his first kingly edict. Father, forgive them, they know not what they do. Was there ever a king like this? Is there ever a king like this? Humble, righteous, the one who saves, the one who is worthy, the one who loves. Beloved of God, amidst a world of upheaval and uncertainty and chaos and frustration and unbelief and sin, and it has always been a world characterized by those things. Man, what a beautiful time to remember and to rejoice. Our king is here. Let us pray. Holy Spirit, we need you to do what you delight to do, which is to confront us with the Son, which is to extol and shine the spotlight on King Jesus. And so, Lord, my prayer uh, is that your work this morning would be that we would, would see the humility and the sovereignty of our King. That we would hear the songs of his worthiness, Lord, and that you would teach us to sing those songs. More and more and more that you would teach us to sing those songs. And Lord, that you would move us in our spirits, that our hearts and minds and desires would be shaped according to the kingdom that you, Jesus, have ushered in. Lord, would you do that work in our lives? This is a word that, uh, it, it's, a, it's an outdated mode of communication for, for so many of us. We have attention spans that drift in and out. And yet, Lord, you've attached promises to the preaching of your word that you would give us life through it. And that's what we need. Lord, give us life. We thank you for our king uh, who rode into Jerusalem that day with his face set, um, with his mission determined uh, because of his great love for us. 
Lord, would that be a word that transforms, builds up, gives life. We thank you and pray all of this in the name of our King Jesus. Amen.